What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you, broadcasting live from uh, We Act Radio in Washington, D.C. today. This new climate change documentary that Lila Connors and George and Leonardo DiCaprio and I all worked on, I'm in it, premieres on HBO. It's an hour and a half documentary, and I think it's going to blow your mind. And you know, tomorrow, the next day, if you want to call and talk about it, that will be a topic that will always be a good one. So a lot of things in the news today. Jeff Merkley, Maria Cantwell, and Ron Wyden are demanding in the Senate that Mitch McConnell allow a vote on net neutrality. It has passed the House. You know, they want to vote in the Senate. Mitch McConnell, of course, is saying, no, I'd rather continue taking money from Comcast and AT&T and all these big companies that don't want net neutrality. They just want to basically screw us <laughs> but it's we'll see how that shakes out i'm not real optimistic but that's going on but there's a couple things that i think are really serious and i'd love you to weigh in on these the first and i'll just say this very simply biden and trump joe biden and donald trump are both going to be in iowa and biden is going after trump in a big way and Elizabeth Warren is gaining momentum. Bernie Sanders, he's been dropping a couple points, but largely is holding his own. Pete Buttigieg is rocketing up in the polls, and Kamala Harris seems to be doing very well. Everybody else seems to be kind of settling down a little bit. But we'll see. I mean, you know, at this point, nobody would have thought Jimmy Carter would be president. Nobody would have thought the nominees would be, well, I mean, Pickett, right? Democrat or Republican. At this point, this far out from the election. At one point, it looked like Rudy Giuliani was going to be the Republican nominee. I mean, it's, it's been all over the map. And number two, I want to point out to you something that really, it surprised me and it didn't surprise me. And that is Hillary Clinton gave a talk and she said, in fact, I'll read from her speech. She said, and so I think Madeleine Albright's book is really well named, Fascism, A Warning. And the idea, now keep in mind, this is Hillary Clinton, so this is the establishment of the Democratic Party. I mean, the less likely to go what you might call alarmist, you know, I would think. She says, and the idea that it can't happen here is just old-fashioned, my friends. 
So there is so much at stake and so much that people should be trying to sort through for themselves and perhaps joining for action together to speak out. I am a very worried optimist. Again, I'm quoting Hillary Clinton here. I'm a very worried optimist because there seems to be no staying power for a lot of these really serious threats. And that is part of the strategy. You do something today that is even more outrageous than what you did yesterday. You say something that is totally beyond the pale of what should be expected from any public official. And so what happened yesterday is so quickly lost in what is happening today. And this goes way beyond party. And then she goes on to say more than a thousand former prosecutors appointed by Republicans and Democrats all said these incidents are related in Mueller, the second half of his report, clearly amount to indictable obstruction of justice charges. And there are so many Republicans who are speaking out and organizing to try to sound the alarm, but not enough of us. And that means regardless of party, whatever you are. So do you share Hillary Clinton's sense that fascism is coming to America? Are we even in the middle of it? I mean, I've many times over the years read to you and shared with you the book, uh, It Can't Happen Here by Milton Mayer. He went over to Germany and while he was there, in fact, he was there for a year. This is right after World War II. And he sort of lived with or hung out with so much that he virtually lived with 10, quote, good Germans. These were all people who were not in the military. They were not party members. It was, they weren't all gung-ho. One was a bricklayer, one was a baker, one was a college professor. I don't remember all the different professions. And the message that they all conveyed over and over and over again was it happened, it was like every day was a new outrage. I remember, you know, I don't have the copy right in front of me. It's back in the studio in Portland. But, you know, I've read it enough times over the years on the air. Every day was a new outrage. There was constantly a distraction. Whenever anything happened that should alarm us, there was some breaking story about some new thing that Hitler was doing that just, you know, threw the news into a spin. And at a certain point, and this was the college professor, you know, he said, at a certain point, the institutions are all still there. You know, the opera is still, you know, they're still singing at the opera, and the theater is still playing movies, and you can still get a sandwich at the local restaurant. All the institutions of the churches are open, all the institutions are there, and the government seems to be functioning, but the spirit is gone. And in fact, you no longer live in a democracy, you live in a world of fear and dread, and thus the rise of fascism. And I see so many parallels to that, and I think that Hillary Clinton is absolutely right on this. And Madeleine Albright, of course, she's quoting Albright's book, and Madeleine Albright should know. I mean, members of her family perished in the Holocaust. So I'm curious your thoughts on how far down that road we are and what we should do about it. I think we're quite a ways down that road, frankly. And I think that what we need to do about it is we need to start calling people out. We need to hold people responsible. The Democrats need to start taking names and kicking ass in the House and the Senate. Alex Lawson is with us. He's the executive director of Social Security Works and the owner of this radio station that I'm broadcasting from, We Act Radio, in Washington, D.C., and we're so grateful to them for the studio loan. 
The website for Social Security Works is, as you may guess, socialsecurityworks.com. You can tweet Alex at ALaw202 or at SSWorks or at WeActRadio. If we're going to be talking about Social Security, Medicare, prescription drugs, all those kind of things, Alex Lawson, a real expert on this stuff, he lives and breathes this stuff and knows it inside out. So, Alex, welcome. Welcome to your own studio. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Tom. <laughs> it's a, it's a, and, and it's a pleasure being here, right? Um, so We what? love having you, Tom. It's great having you in studio. So thank you for coming to We Act Radio. I mean, you've been a big supporter the whole time, but you also know that this is a pretty uh, unique and amazing enterprise to have this radio station here in Anacostia. So to bring your show to the world from here is an honor for us at We Act Radio. Well, thank you. Thank you, and, and, uh, and it's really a pleasure being here. So what is the state of Social Security? What is the state of Medicare? What's going on with prescription drugs? Let's take these one at a time. Where are we at with Social Security? We're hearing the Republicans, probably in anticipation of a Democratic president being elected, starting to yell about the budget deficit. Mm-hmm. Last week, first time I actually, I think, heard a Republican senator going off on it. And, of course, usually that precedes a, well, we, this was George W. Bush's whole thing. We just can't afford it. You know, it's right. Social Security. We've got to take a bite out of it, which he did, as I recall. So where are we at? That's basically it. The only wrinkle is that Donald Trump, for all of who Donald Trump is, and he's a terrible person, he actually does understand politics a lot better than some of the consultant class here in D.C. So he actually campaigned, as you know and your listeners know, he differentiated himself from Republicans by saying that he was going to protect Social Security. Uh, that was obviously a lie. You just add it to, you know, the book of lies that he has. The people in his administration, like Mick Mulvaney, literally came to this town to destroy Social Security. Really? Mick Mulvaney? Yeah, Mulvaney, I mean, Social Security... Specifically for that? Yes, they'll frame it differently, but their truth is to get rid of Social Security and Medicare, right? If you can get rid of these two programs that work for people and just force people into an even more uncertain reality than happens right now, they just become grist for the Wall Street mill. The billionaires, private equity, hedge fund, arsonists, that's how they make money. They break things. They don't actually make money by building things. So things that work, like Social Security, they have to destroy it so that people can't rely on it, so that it doesn't give them any security. So Mick Mulvaney is actually the one who, you know, he he actually sort of crowed about the fact that he confused Donald Trump, which I don't think is that hard to do, into thinking that there are two different parts of Social Security and that cutting the disability program is not violating his promise. Um, Not that he cares that much, but that's what they've been aiming at. And his budget has massive cuts to Social Security in it. We continue to see those attacks. So that's the administrative side attacks, the death by a thousand cuts. They have tremendous power there. Probably the biggest news is that they're going to get a new commissioner Mm -hmm. in, a guy named Andrew Saul. He is just opponent of the program. So the person who's going to be running the program actually doesn't believe very much that the program should exist. Mm -hmm. And even more dangerous is his deputy commissioner, Black, is the guy who he is in charge of busting the union over there, of making it such a hostile work environment that people just flee. 
and then we lose the expertise and the customer service and everything that people love about Social Security. So we need people to understand that this administration is absolutely an enemy of Social Security. No matter what Donald Trump says, he surrounded himself by people who treat him sort of as a useful idiot. You know, they're pushing their ideological agenda uh, and they know how to, you know, operate with Donald Trump. And then what you brought up is always the truth. So you have Mitch McConnell, who's been pretty consistently saying, you know, they, they give away one and a half trillion dollars uh, to billionaires, people who don't need it. Uh, and then they create a deficit hysteria that they say, oh, well, that's why we're going to have to come after, you know, your Social Security, your Medicare. As Jude Wininsky's old two Santa Claus theory. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So have they actually yet cut Social Security disability? No, because we are pretty well armed against those. And the two Santa Claus theory I definitely learned from you in this show, Tom. Mm. <laughs> we know that, first of all, there is only one Social Security, right? Like you and I pay into Social Security. No one gives us anything. We see it coming out of our paychecks. We pay for these benefits and it's insurance against the loss of wages, which includes if a person faces a life-changing event and becomes disabled and can't work anymore. It's the same insurance. And if the breadwinner of a family dies, then their surviving children get survivor's benefits. It's just one insurance policy policy, a social insurance policy, but there's no way you can separate it out. And we've been able to actually build a, a pretty unified and powerful coalition so that when they do try to divide and conquer, we come at them with full force. And we have been able to push back on most of those. You see what happens then is like whack-a-mole or a balloon. It pops up in other places. So not to get like too in the weeds, but this is how they do it, right? It's confusing. Sure. There are defining something on the poverty line using the chained CPI, which as you remember, is a benefit cut. So they're using a benefit cut in another issue area to get it through, to sail it through, and then it'll be brought over to Social Security. So is, that, is that because Social Security uses things like the Consumer Price Index exactly. to determine cost of living a lot. Uh, and they tried to get it in the front door, just get use the chain CPI to calculate right. people's benefits. That was benefits. the one that Obama almost went exactly. along with, and then he backed off when the public outrage got really loud. When we got very loud and your yeah. your listeners called in and hammered the phones, right? Like that's So now they're going in a side door. Those are the kind of tactics that we're seeing. We've been able to fight them pretty well, but this is going to be so much worse when they're actually in charge, when they have a commissioner and a deputy commissioner who are in for six years, so you mm. know. Why the Democrats in the Senate did not do everything in their power to block these guys is beyond me. Well, they don't have enough votes, do they? They could have bottled them up in committee. They should have used literally every, like, I don't think anyone even knew that these commissioners sailed through, right? Like, I, mm. I feel this is kind of like Barr when they approved him and we're like, oh, what's the worst he can do? So this afternoon, I'm flying home from D.C. Finally, after D.C., New York, Los Angeles, and, and there's more to come on the book tour, but... Um, boy, am I, but I, am I ready? And am I, you know, a long airplane ride this afternoon tonight. I get home late tonight. And that's when I really need a little CBD oil to just take the, the pain off. The anti-inflammatory pro properties, the pain-relieving properties of CBD oil are extraordinary. To get the health benefits of cannabinoid without getting high, no, no intoxication, 
and it's non-toxic, you know, it's, and it's not addictive either, um, like some, some painkillers are. The brand that I, I use, Louise and I both use and trust, is New Leaf Naturals. NULeafNaturals.com is the website. They make the highest quality CBD oil on the market, 100% organic, highly concentrated, no additional additives, grown right here in the USA. The only ingredient is hemp. It's legal. It's safe. It's pure. It's uh, just straightforward stuff. NewLeafNaturals.com is the website. That's N-U-Leaf. They spell new, N-U. NULeafNaturals.com. And you get 30% off and free shipping in the U.S. when you use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, at NewLeafNaturals.com. NULeafNaturals.com for premium cannabinoid wellness. There's only one place, NewLeafNaturals.com. And use the code TOM to get that 30% discount. NewLeafNaturals.com. We're sitting here with Alex Lawson of SocialSecurityWorks.org. So Social Security disability is not different from Social Security, first off. Right. It's only one. And the attack that you're seeing right now is on basically the cost of living increases with Social Security. Yeah, and I will say we're also seeing the normal attacks. I put them into three buckets. There's like new and novel attacks because they're always looking for ways in. They being the Republican Party, basically. And uh, Republican Party, yes, but also anyone aligned with Wall Street interests. So there's so, a few Democrats in this too. Yeah, definitely. Wall Street, Dems, um, you know, like we... Tom Carper from Delaware has never been a friend of Social Security, for example. Um, you Is that know, because the, the big banks want to be the ones, who, the only ones who are offering old age pensions? That's exactly right. Um, as long as Social Security exists, people don't have to put all of their eggs in a Wall Street basket, which is good because Wall Street then takes the basket and onto their yacht and maybe you get an egg McMuffin from it, but they get the eggs in oh, the Oh, look basket. all across America ever since Reagan at all the people who've lost their pensions when their companies right. went bankrupt and bankrupted their, their pension funds and things. I mean, you know, and those, that was all money stashed in banks. Yes, and what you're seeing is what they really want is for everyone to be reliant on the market. Um, so they do everything they can to destroy Social Security. The new and novel one are this poverty line, which you'll see in the news, and it won't mention anything about Social Security. It'll say something like Donald Trump reconfiguring how poverty is calculated. But that's a sneak attack on Social Security. Ivanka Trump and Marco Rubio came up with this idea, this family leave idea, right? Paid family leave. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't paid family leave. It actually took your own Social Security and you paid for your family leave. Have you seen that one? No. That's actually the most interesting of the new attacks. So they've done it on a couple issues, but the idea there is to get people to think of their Social Security not as wage insurance, but as money that they could be conned into using to pay for other things that they want. So that you're like, no, no, how about we just have paid family leave and we pay for it by taxing bankers and we don't actually take it out of our own retirement. And of course, you know, you don't have Social Security funds. It's one giant pool. So we'll just take it out of Social Security, which is going to kill the program, I guess mm -hmm. would be the word. And that there's all these other attacks on it, which is just mind boggling how it just never stops. One of the things, though, that I think is really important for people to get is that if you're 25, 30, 35, 40, you know, a lot of young people say, Social Security, you know, oh, it's a pain in the butt because they take this money out of my paycheck every month or every, every week or every paycheck. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to qualify for it until I'm 60, what is it, 7 now. 
And uh, thank you, Ronald Reagan. Yeah, I mean, who in their 20s even thinks about being 67? Somebody will call up and say something like that. I tell the story of my friend Michael Hutchison. Michael was a dear friend of mine, and this was 30 some odd years ago. He was an author. He wrote a bunch of books on uh, mega brain and uh, you know on, on optimal function, intellectual function, stuff like that. And he was out running. And he lived in Santa Fe. He was out running in the winter. Every morning he'd go for a run. He was running across a bridge over a small river in Santa Fe, and it was icy. And the bridge had a side rail, but it was only about three feet high. And he hit a patch of ice and fell over on the side rail and literally flipped, you know, dropped 12 feet into the water and hit the, hit the river and broke his neck. And he, here he is in this freezing water. And thank God somebody else was running and they saw him because he was paralyzed from the neck down for the rest of his life. And Social Security was what saved him. He had no savings. He had no job anymore. He couldn't write for a living anymore. I mean, eventually he figured out how to occasionally, you know, do something with some voice dictation machines and stuff. And in fact, myself and a number of other people helped him out with that and bought the computers for him and things. But, uh, you know, Michael would have just, you know, it would have been, hey, just curl up and die. I mean, his parents were dead. He didn't have close, you know, direct family. And he lived on Social Security for the rest of his life. They paid for his housing. They paid for his medical care. That's what Social Security disability is. And he was not 65. He was in his 40s, as I recall, maybe even his late 30s. Because of his condition, he only lived another 15 years or so. I used to go visit him regularly. But that's when it became real for me mm -hmm. that every single one of us has a, it's not even a million-dollar insurance policy. I mean, Michael, in 15 or 20 years or however long he was on this, probably consumed more than a million dollars of Social Security money. You have basically an unlimited insurance policy against a car accident, against a physical accident. Uh, you know, if somebody assaults you, beats you up, breaks your neck, injures you in a way that you can't work anymore, if you get a disease, you develop ALS or something like that. These diseases sometimes strike young people and, and they can't work. How do we communicate that better? I think the average 20-something, 30-something has no idea that Social Security is this mind-bogglingly great insurance program that they have, that they walk around with, that protects them every single day. To be cliche, it is a victim of its own success. It operates so smoothly and with such efficiency that people don't even realize they have it until they need it, which is how we want it to operate. But the thing is, there's this coordinated propaganda attack by Wall Street that actually poisons people's brains because Propaganda doesn't, you know, like just because you're smart doesn't mean that the propaganda is not working. You know them, I know them, a lot of people, you talk to them, these are people who understand policy, you know, whatever. I don't care what room you're talking to. Ask some young people if they think Social Security is going to be there for you and, and a lot of hands are going to go up at no. It's not going to be there for them. That they're just paying into the system with no expectation of return. Well, this has been the this has been the pitch from the Republicans for as long as I've been alive. I mean, I've been hearing this since the since the sixties. Yeah, know, Social Security is not going to be. I remember William F. Buckley talking about this on Firing Line yeah. on Corporation for Public Broadcasting, yeah. public TV back in the sixties. Yeah. Uh, my dad and I had an argument about it. And go back even further. I mean, Alf Landon, who ran against FDR lost every state but one, actually ran on the same thing, that it's not real, it's not going to be there for you. 
Social Security has never missed a single payment. I mean, it is the most secure thing that you probably have, that the vast majority of people in this country have in terms of an asset. Actuarially, it's around $2 million worth of insurance product that we all, everyone who's, every working family who's paid in actuarially has around $2 million in life and disability insurance. And that inflation-protected annuity at retirement is a non-marketable thing. I mean, no business could ever offer that. It's impossible. It can only be done with social insurance. Young people need to understand that for young people, is who we're talking about Social Security for. All the changes that, all the attacks, all the, it, it's for young people. The younger you are, the bigger the cuts to your benefits are being discussed right now. Generally, they actually carve out people who are currently on it, right? They say, mm -hmm. oh, no, no. Not, not, yeah. because, because... We're not going to hurt grandpa because and grandma. Because grandma and grandpa vote every single time right. uh, on Social Security. You know, I call them always voters. Well, they this is what Reagan time. did in 82 or 83. 83 you know, yep, yeah, exactly. Yeah, he cranked the retirement age up to from, 80, from 65 to, to 67. But he said, oh, well, we'll wait, you know, what, 30 years before that we'll takes just, effect? We'll, we'll bring it in so younger people are hit harder. And that's why young people have to understand that Social Security that we're talking about is young people people are going to be hurt the most if we don't stop these cuts now. Insane. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Alex Lawson, the executive director of Social Security Works, is with us. And Alex, let's talk Medicare for a minute. Okay. You know, people talk about Social Security, but there's also Medicare. First of all, what's the relationship between the two programs? So uh, in the original vision of Social Security, there was supposed to be a national health plan. Every single person in this country was supposed to get health care. But they didn't think, even in the New Deal, that they could get that lift. But the idea was it would be the immediate next thing, that the next administration would push through a national health plan. And that is John Dingell Sr. Now, it actually, you know, AMA, Wall Street forces conspired again, and it didn't look like they could get national health care or cover everyone. Mm -hmm. So they went with Medicare, what we know as Medicare now, which was for seniors. And that's John Dingell Jr. So his son, John Dingell Sr.'s son, signed Medicare into law. That was like his legislative package. That wasn't done because it was like, oh, let's be nice to seniors, right? Before Social Security, one in two seniors lived in poverty. Before Medicare, it was only down to one in three. I mean, Social Security was massively impactful, but when actuaries in the insurance companies would look, they basically tell health insurers, as soon as a person gets to 65, lose them. Find any way possible to right. get them off your rolls. You cannot make money. It is not profitable to insure people over the age of 65. Right. So that's exactly what happened. So that's why Medicare Pe came along. People didn't have it. It wasn't, you know, people got sick and died because there was no system there. So we got Medicare, as we currently know it, which insures people over the age of 65. Um, disability and some chronic conditions. 
Medicare, traditional Medicare is an amazing program. It's got some problems in it. There are missing features. It doesn't cover hearing, vision, and dental, which makes absolutely no sense at all. It's got a copay, so people have to buy a private insurance product to fill the gap. They're called Medigap products, and right. you know, uh, well, this is a hole they carved out for the insurance exactly. companies. It's to make just to make the money. Yeah. But even that wasn't enough for them, as you know. They then created Medicare Advantage, um, which just allowed the private insurers to really take a beachhead um, more than they had, and they're slowly worming their way all throughout the system to undermine traditional Medicare. The problem is private insurance. They can't be the solution because they are the problem. Denial of care is a concept that we allow to exist in this country, which in a rational healthcare system doesn't exist. If you get sick, you get the care that you need. That's what should happen, but that's right. not what happens here. Right. Can we take some phone calls? Of course. Okay. Bruce. Bruce, you're in uh, Boca Raton, Florida. You're on the air with Alex. My biggest concern right now is that Medicare for All is kind of being overlooked as a side effect of creating jobs, in a sense, reducing the cost of labor and reducing the cost of manufacturing without having to pay for exorbitant for-profit health insurance. I mean, General Motors testified in front of Congress a few years back basically saying their biggest cost of overhead was not materials, it was health insurance. So that, that's being really underplayed, I think, in terms of marketing or expressing the advantages. Of in other words, Medicare for All should be pitched as a jobs creation program. That's a really great point. I think there's two things that are somewhat missed a lot in this. So, Bruce, I think you're right on with that. Another thing I note is that people should understand that the first thing that Medicare for All does is it adds vision, dental, and hearing to Medicare. It fixes the problems that exist in traditional Medicare and then expands it to everyone. It has an incredibly robust coverage plan. And because of that, when a business is actually that's selling widgets is able to just focus on selling widgets, uh, then obviously it's going to be better at producing widgets. Why in this country alone have we created a system where the widget manufacturer is also a health insurance marketer uh, every single year having to negotiate a new policy with the insurers? That's another part that Bruce, I think, implied, but did state there's this whole propaganda against Medicare for all that you're going to not be able to see the doctor that you want to see and I'm like it drives me mad because that's this system our system has narrow networks private insurers are the ones that say you can see this doctor and not that doctor and then every year if you're lucky enough to have insurance from your job that policy changes and the thing that I think hasn't been examined enough and I'd love to know if you've looked into this at all because it's just it's it's underreported it's so obvious that they're doing it but the big insurance is using big data algorithms 
to systematically look through their policies, identify expensive people on their policies and the doctors that they go to, and then exclude those doctors from the network the next year in the policy because they know that that's where the coverage comes from. So they're finding sick people who need care in their policies and then figuring out a way to not cover the expensive things that they need. And they're bringing the power of Silicon Valley into this game. Um, so it is a massive, it would unleash a massive amount of entrepreneurial power if we could just have manufacturers and businesses focus on business and not healthcare as well. Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> Indeed. Sue in Beaverton, Wisconsin, Sue? Yeah, in Beaver Dam, Wisconsin. Hi to both of you, and thanks for all that you do. I just have a question for Alex, whether or not there's anyone that is lobbying or looking into having all Social Security non-taxed federally. You know, it isn't taxed until you have a pension or you take money out of your annuity, and then you get over that lap, and, you know, a pretty big chunk of your Social Security then can become taxable. And just if there was anyone looking at that or if you're aware of any lobbying taking place to maybe have that not all of our Social Security be non-taxable. Thank you, Sue. Thanks, Sue. That's a great question. The short answer is yes, but some of those are wolves in sheep's clothing. And then there is somebody who's a true leader on Social Security and a champion on this who has taken a tough look at that, Sue. And that's John Larson from Connecticut. And he has a bill called the Social Security 2100 Act. And that bill actually expands benefits for everyone, around a 2% increase across the board. It also changes the cost of living adjustment, the COLA, and is more accurate to reflect the cost faced by seniors, folks with disabilities, and it actually also addresses the taxation of benefits. So it changes the way that happens so that it would affect less people and it indexes the amount that's taxed over time. So it adjusts it from when it was put in place in 1983 and then it indexes it over time um, so that uh, far fewer people would actually find their benefits being taxed. Yeah. Let me actually do a little plug more for that because sure. we are nine people away from actually getting 218 sponsors on that bill, which is pretty amazing. We are very close to having enough sponsors on the Social Security 2100 Act that it could pass a floor vote. The only thing holding it up right now, because I think it would pass a floor vote right now if the vote was called, but leadership is actually not moving it to the floor because it doesn't have 218. Uh, so Sue and everyone listening, you can go to socialsecurityworks.org and find out if your member of Congress is on the bill. If they're not, really push them because nine members away from actually passing an expansion bill out of the House, and that would be an incredible message of the direction uh, that the Democrats are taking. And. I, I, I don't want to point fingers too much, but leadership is standing in the way of this bill. I, it would pass right now if we're brought to a vote. But if we can actually get the uh, 218 is the amount of members, the amount of votes that something needs to pass. Mm -hmm. so if in you the had, House. In the House. If you had the sponsors 
the number of sponsors on a bill actually be the amount to pass the bill, there's no way they could get around bringing it to a floor vote. Um, so John Larson is a machine. He keeps pushing his bill, the Social Security 2100 Act, because it actually... He's congressman from where? Connecticut. Connecticut. And uh, he is the chair of the Social Security Subcommittee on Ways and Means. He is a very powerful member of Congress in leadership. Uh, and so we just need those nine more sponsors. And I think we've got this one out of the house. Stephanie Miller here. If you watch 60 Minutes and you own a home, you just got very nervous. I did. The FBI's former head of cybercrimes warned homeowners that foreign and domestic thieves can steal your home and do it all online. That's because home titles and mortgages are kept in databases that can be hacked. If you have equity in your home, here's how they get you. They simply forge their name onto your home's title, use your home as collateral to borrow cash, and stick you with the payments. And no bank or identity theft program protects you. You need Home Title Lock, America's leading title and mortgage guardian. For pennies a day, Home Title Lock puts a virtual barrier around your home's title and mortgage. If cyber thieves tamper with it, we mobilize to help shut it down. You may already be a victim. Here's how to find out. Go to HomeTitleLock.com and register for your free title scan and report. $100 value, free with sign-up. Don't let cyber thieves steal your home. Go to HomeTitleLock.com like I did. That's HomeTitleLock.com. One more time, that's HomeTitleLock.com. Tom Hartman here with you. Where are we at? Where do we go? What can we do? So we're in this weird moment where, like, the world's obviously on fire. Donald Trump is um, the president. Uh, things look bleak. And at the exact same moment, there's another side to the coin, which is we're in some of the most tremendous potential uh, for progressive policies that I've ever seen. Um, Medicare for all has, you know, we just had a we just announced a hearing in Ways and Means. These big things are happening. That's what we need to do. We need to not just defeat Donald Trump. We need to defeat the situation, the austerity, which leads to fascism every single time. Uh, we need to create a system that won't allow him to exist anymore. Uh, and what that means is we need to start talking about big ideas, the Green New Deal. We need a fight for 15 in Social Security, which we're working on. But we need big concepts. We need to start talking about lowering the retirement age and not just a little bit. A lot, because we need to take on the reality that we're facing right now that Wall Street has just destroyed the future for so many people. And we need to have laws and a system that replace what we currently have with something that works for the people and not just for Wall Street. So we need to keep demanding more on Medicare for All. We need to demand all the presidential candidates are on board with Medicare for All, with expanding Social Security, with massively lowering prescription drug prices. And we need to take on these industries one by one. Sorry, I say one by one, but what I mean is all at the same time, because what they always have been able to do is point fingers at each other, right? The insurance companies point fingers at pharma, pharma points fingers at pharmacy benefit managers, whatever, all of them. We need to come at them all and demand a future that actually works for us, the people, and the globe. 
Social Security 2100 Act, we're nine votes away. That's just a start. We need to be aiming much bigger. We need to be talking about, you know, doubling people's Social Security benefits, lowering the retirement age, uh, expanding traditional Medicare that's improved to everybody. Uh, and I think we're doing a good job, but now is the time to put our foot on the gas. That's how we defeat. And any Democratic politicians who are actually talking about that really bold agenda that you just talked about. You know, I, I, I hear a lot of stuff around the edges. If you look at what people like Ilhan Omar is talking about with student debt, she's talking about canceling all student debt. Right. Uh, you, you look at AOC and what she's bringing to the table on a bunch of fronts, Rashida Tlaib, Ro Khanna, uh, Pramila Jayapal and Mark Pocan at the head of the CPC, the Congressional Progressive Congress. They're actually taking aim at these big ideas, but they're held back by this tiny sliver, the blue dogs, you know, Stephanie Murphy in Florida, who there's so few of them, but in they the Democratic Party. In the Democratic Party. And they seem to be driving the agenda. So we need to break the stranglehold of what I think of as the 1990s. It's generationally wrong. It's not made for the moment that we exist in right now. And we need these new voices, these new leaders, power them and amplify them because they are on target with what they're looking for. There you go. Alex Lawson with Social Security Works. Thank you, Alex. Thanks, Tom. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is uh, Robin Feldman's book, Drugs, Money, and Secret Handshakes, The Unstoppable Growth of Prescription Drug Prices from Oxford University Press. This is from the introduction. Everyone has a limit. Every budget has an endpoint. Although sellers would love to raise prices continually, it doesn't take fancy economics to know that at some point the money runs out. Why isn't that basic principle working as expected in the pharmaceutical industry? Instead, drug prices are rising continually and reaching astronomical levels with no end in sight. In May 2018, analysts report that reported that a company is contemplating a $1.5 million price tag for new hemophilia cure. The current hemophilia therapies already cost an astounding $580,000 to $800,000 a year. Along the same lines, Spark Therapeutics' cure for a rare form of blindness will cost $850,000, rivaling Novartis' planned $475,000 price tag for its CAR-T drug, Chimera. Even outside the eye-popping headlines, prescription drug prices across the board have risen to an alarming and puzzling level. A government inspector general's report found that the high cost of brand medications for common conditions like diabetes, high cholesterol, and asthma were the true problem for patients on Medicare. In fact, pharmaceutical companies have raised the prices most sharply for commonly used medications such as these. Similarly, an analyst report concluded that in 2016, the average price for a set of specialty drugs known as orphan drugs was $140,000 a year, and the average price of ordinary drugs was almost $28,000 a year. The list price of drugs tells only part of the story, given the many rebate and discount processes that exist within the industry. Nevertheless, real spending for drugs is rising as well. According to the Health and Human Services Inspector General's report, even after accounting for rebates, Medicare spending for branded drugs still rose 62 percent between 2011 and 2015. Worse yet, the department responsible for Medicare and Medicaid projects that the increase in national prescription drug spending will more than double in 2018 from the prior year's significant rise. In 2017, this increase in spending outpaced increased health care spending as a whole and the 2017-2018 Consumer Price Index. All of this despite the fact that roughly 80% of the prescriptions in this country are filled using generic drugs. 
No one would ever suggest that spending within the healthcare system follows an ordinary, rational model. The patient as consumer does not absorb the full cost of health care given the effects of private insurance and government programs, nor does the consumer possess full information about the products purchased or the cost of choices, and even physicians experience information gaps. Most important, the value consumers place on their own lives creates distortions that differ from buying choices in ordinary markets. Nevertheless, dollars are finite and some limits must exist. One can see the mounting pressure in government budgets which are struggling to cover the cost of new expensive medicines. If the Defense Department had treated all VA patients infected with hepatitis C in 2015 using the breakthrough cure Sovaldi, the $12 billion cost would have accounted for 20% of the department's annual medical budget just for treating a single disease. With budgets in the home, patients reporting rationing or foregoing medications for lack of funding. This is precisely the type of boundary point that should create pressure to reduce prices, and yet the rises persist. This book analyzes and explains the phenomenon which has puzzled modern commentators and policymakers alike. Why do drug prices stubbornly continue to rise despite the promise of competition from generic drugs? Quite simply, the phenomenon occurs because internal incentives push every market participant toward behaviors that increase prices, knocking out the normal checks that should operate as breakpoints on the market. At the center of the system lies the highly secret and highly concentrated industry known as pharmacy benefit managers, or PBMs. These middle players negotiate prices between branded drug companies and those who pay the bills. They arrange for rebates from various drug companies. The book demonstrates the way in which encouraging consumers to use drugs with higher prices operates in the interests of so many players, including doctors, clinics, hospitals, PBMs, brand drug companies, health plans, patient assistance programs, and patient advocacy programs. It continues from there. Drugs, Money, and Secret Handshakes by Robin Feldman. Many investors are asking, how long will this economic bubble last? When the inevitable crash takes place, what will that look like for your retirement? Will you have enough time to rebuild, or are you currently looking for ways to safeguard your existing portfolio? If the worst happens, it won't just be the markets and real estate. With the Fed's nonstop money printing, a dollar collapse is even more concerning. There are simple charts the Federal Reserve provides to help us investors make educated decisions. Google the FRED chart on the purchasing power of the dollar and look at the data yourself. Also take notice that the last 100 years of recessions have consistently occurred within 10 years from each other. The last recession was in 2008. What does that tell you? Gold and silver are statistically the best hedge against volatile markets and economies. Call my friends at ITM Trading at one own gold Ask them for their free gold protection guide and protect your future while you still can. Call one own gold That's 1-888-O-W-N-G-O-L-D. You're listening to Tom Hartman. I will be in Portland tomorrow night at 7.30 at Powell's Bookstore. So it's going to be a hoot. It's going to be a lot of fun. So check it out. And uh, also tomorrow night, well, tonight is the uh, premiere on HBO of Ice on Fire, the new Leonardo DiCaprio documentary that I played a role in putting together and I'm in. And Lila Connors is the director of Leo, uh, narrated it and produced it along with his dad, George. And if you don't have an HBO subscription, tomorrow night you'll be able to watch it because HBO is going to put it outside their paywall. So just go to however you get to HBO. There's apps and there's websites and, of course, there's, it's on cable systems and, and, uh, and whatnot. So we're talking about our favorites for the Democratic nomination. 
and why. Denise in Boonville, Missouri. Hey, Denise, your thoughts? I am a teacher, so education is extremely important to me. I'm also disabled, so healthcare is another big issue for me. I was in a car wreck and paralyzed four years ago. And I live on the river, the Missouri River, which is flooded right now. My physical therapist has to drive instead of 10 minutes to work. She has to drive almost two hours to get here because of climate change. So those are three very important issues to me. My personal favorite is Bernie Sanders. He was my favorite in 2016. Shortly after my accident, I was able to research everybody. Well, back then there weren't a lot to research. And basically almost every single thing he set forth in his policy uh, lined up with what I want personally and what I think Mm -hmm. would be good for the U.S. and the Earth. So that's why I choose him as my vice president. I would choose Warren or Gabbard. I'm with somebody else who said Nina Turner. (laughs) And I'm wondering when you Mm. or Robert Reich will be joining the pool. I'll not be running for political office. I know what I do well and what I don't do well. And I do this well, I think, you know, writing and doing TV and radio, but I would make a lousy politician. I can't speak for Robert Reich. I would love to see him be more high profile, but he's doing a great job on the Internet. Denise, thank you. Thank you. That's a great list, and and it's great to hear from you. Charlotte in Elmira, New York. Charlotte, you're on the air. Hi, how are you? I just called to say that I think Joe Biden would be good for president because of all his experience. And I'd like mm-hmm. to see a woman as vice president, either Elizabeth Warren or Kamala Harris. Mm-hmm. That's that's the way okay. I feel. I, I would actually like Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris, but I just don't think that the country's ready for it. I don't think they would vote for a woman on both sides of the ticket. Here's the thing. You know, I have a number of people have said to me that they think that uh, Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris or Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren would make just an absolute kick-ass ticket because Harris has this background as a prosecutor. She's a lawyer. She understands the law. Of course, Warren was a professor of law as a, in addition to being a lawyer, but, but Harris really, really knows how to, how to take a bite out of somebody. And, and, yes, uh, and Elizabeth Warren people. has all these policy prescriptions. But the story that I was telling was, um, you know, longtime listeners of this program may remember back in 2007, when the primary field was shaking out in the Democratic Party and it was Hillary Clinton versus Barack Obama and the conventional wisdom was that Hillary Clinton was going to be the nominee. And I had on this program one of the senior officials in the Democratic Party in, in the, for the state of California. My recollection is he was you know, one, uh, number two or something like that in the party, but it might have been a, just Southern California. I, I don't know how California breaks up the party. But a very smart uh, you know, African-American guy who was on my show and he said, uh, and we were talking about the primary, and I said, what do you think, mm-hmm. you know, who, who should people be voting for? And he said, do not vote for Barack Obama. And I'm like, why? And he says, you know, I'm a black man. I know how much racism there is in this country, and there's no way America is going to elect a black president. So vote for Hillary Clinton. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. sure enough, Barack Obama became president not once, but twice. So the conventional yeah. wisdom back in 2008 was there's no way that a black man, particularly a black man whose middle name is Hussein, could get elected president <laughs> of the United States. And he did. So, I, yeah. I, you know, I would not be afraid at all of a ticket of two women. I, you know, and I realize misogyny is right up there with racism. 
um, in terms mm -hmm. of you know its impact on our culture and how widespread it is, particularly among men. But um, I, I, I think we should be unafraid. Um, you know, well, we, and I'm not making a pitch here for any view, particular ticket. <laughs> looking at it from that mm -hmm. point of view, it doesn't it doesn't sound as hopeless. <laughs> Yeah. So yeah. I mean, you know, look at what we've already done, Charlotte. There you yeah. go. Yeah. And, and so, Charlotte, thank you very much for the call. It's great to hear from you. I appreciate it. Bill in Mendocino, California. Bill, what's up? Hey, how are you doing today? Thank you, Tom, for taking my call. I would like sure. to put in Elizabeth Warren and Cynthia McKinney. She was my favorite back in 08. Voted mm. for her. But, of course, we know where that went. I, I love Cynthia McKinney. She was on the floor of the House of Representatives. I, this was back in the early 2000s uh, during the uh, Bush administration. And I had written an op-ed on Common Dreams about how Dick Cheney was a war criminal and specifically why. You know, it was kind of an indictment of him. And she went on the floor of the House and read that. And they gaveled her and ordered her to stop, that you can't criticize the vice president, it's not respectful. And she just kept on reading, and they literally, the sergeant-at-arms came up and grabbed her and dragged her off as she was continuing to read my op-ed. And <laughs> I have had so much love and respect for her ever since. But to the best of my oh, knowledge, yeah. uh, Bill, she's not running for president or vice president. She's not, in the, she's not in the race, is she? No, she's not in the race, but I think that her pursuit, I mean, her pursuit of 9-11 back in the day, that was a lot of yeah. what cost her her job. So that, yeah, that's, why she's not, that's I, why she's not in there now. Yeah. So if we think, want any truth brilliant. about what happened at 9-11 or any time back then, we need to have Cynthia McKinney back in there. Yeah. So, well, well, and that's what she was talking about, is how, is how Dick, Dick Cheney was exploiting that. Bill, thank you for the call. Uh, Lynn in Los Angeles, your thoughts? I have done a deep dive into the records of all the candidates, and I'm absolutely confident that we have a winner in Bernie Sanders. He, I don't, I, I'm worried we're going to look our gift horse in the mouth and miss this opportunity to elect the best president of our lifetime because he uh, cares about the people. He will never sell his vote, um, and he doesn't spout a lot of beautiful but empty rhetoric. He doesn't rely on identity politics. He doesn't flip flop. Who would you like oh, to see real quickly, Deborah, for vice president? Elizabeth Warren for her ideas, and they have a 20-year relationship, so they'll make his 18. Thank you very much. I appreciate the call, Lynn. Deborah in Parker, Colorado. Hey, Deborah, thanks for watching us on Free Speech TV. My choice for president and vice president is Elizabeth Warren. She has the juice, the fire, the drive. I hope she takes it. And Bernie Sanders, close second. If those two ran together, I think they would sweep it. Also, if they couldn't have that combination, Jerry Brown or Michelle Obama would also, whoever um, gets president, if they put them on their ticket, I think they would still sweep it. Jerry Brown, yeah. Michelle I, Obama. Well, Jerry, ba um, Jerry Brown is, is getting up there in the years. He's kind of checked out of politics. Uh, Michelle Obama, I love Michelle Obama, and I'd vote for her for anything, including president. But to the best of mm -hmm. my knowledge, she does not have political ambitions. She doesn't want to do the right. Hillary thing of, you know, becoming. So uh, who do you think uh, who's actually Elizabeth in the Warren, race? Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders. Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders. But if either one of them won and, and they, um, 
if they had a poll where they had to pull from for vice president, I think Michelle Obama, Jerry Brown, yeah. or oh, um, okay, I got you know, it. Either yep. either Elizabeth Warren or, or uh, Bernie Sanders, whoever wins, I think um, that that would be the dream ticket. Okay, uh, Deborah, thank you very much. Uh, Paul in uh, Riverside, California. Paul, your thoughts? Who would you be hey, voting for? I would vote for uh, Bernie Sanders and uh, Elizabeth Warren. And the reason I would vote for Bernie Sanders is because uh, how many times have we had somebody in office that campaigns on promises and delivers zero, delivers absolutely nothing? And Bernie is a straight shooter. He's got a proven track record. I mean, you, anybody can see that what he says he does, and he is for the people. He's the guy we need. And the only thing that worries me is the DNC, because I feel that they are running a different individual as their lead person, and he's supposedly fabricating, or fa his uh, poll numbers are fabricated right now, and they're going to run that person instead of Bernie. And Bernie is the front runner, and if you look at all of his rallies and everything, he is the one bringing in the crowds. And like I said, he's a straight shooter, and he's what we need. He's the person that okay. would make a difference. Thank you very much, Paul. Pat in Greeley, Colorado. Pat, your thoughts? My choices would be Bernie and Elizabeth Warren. There's a lot of great candidates. My primary reason is that I look for a candidate who has compassion and who is able to show his, their compassion in their, both in their rhetoric and in the policies and in what they have done. And I think we've got a lot of great candidates. My two favorite are Bernie and Elizabeth Warren. Okay, great. Thank you very much. William in South Orange, New Jersey. William, we have 15 seconds. Your thoughts? My choices are Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, either first or second for either of them. But they both have a plan. Okay. They both are moving the ball they do. progressively to the left, and everyone else is following them. They are both very, very solid progressive candidates. You're absolutely right. Thank you very much, William, for the call. Uh, up next, Luke Vargas with Talk Media News. Stick around. We'll be right back. Let's check in with Luke Vargas and find out what's going on in the world today. This report from Talk Media News brought to you by GoatsForTheOldGoat.com and Loving What You Do, Ellen Ratner's new book. Luke is the chief foreign correspondent for Talk Media News, joins us today from New York. And Luke, there's been a back and forth would be the polite way to say it. Something to do with people spraying water at each other would be the impolite way to say it. A war between Trump and the press and Mexico about what actually happened with this Mexico deal. What's the story here? You're right to suggest the details are a little bit hard to pin down, and that one thing that I think we can diagnose is, I think, real professionalism on the part of these Mexican negotiators to have basically, and it's got to be really tough for them to, on one hand, feel such an impulse to dismiss Trump's instincts to take their relationship, which goes back so many years and is solid on so many fronts, and to insult it so regularly, you know, and 
you'd imagine they want to walk out of the room with U.S. negotiators at times when suddenly after, let's say, hashing out a trade deal for two years, you're told that it all hinges on a whole new set of policy measures. So there's clearly frustration that they're burying as they bite their lips and try to sort of say things that President Trump wants to hear on immigration. The two things that have really jumped out in the last day is their decision to deploy 6,000 Mexican National Guard to the southern Mexican border with Guatemala. You could think of this as sort of a figurative border wall to stop Central Americans from making their journey northward. They've also agreed to beef up an existing deal that was struck last year that would see folks from Central America who actually want to apply for asylum in the United States to basically spend a few months loitering around in Mexican cities as their asylum paperwork is dealt with, as opposed to being processed and then released into the United States during that same period. The the real question, I guess, at this point now is, and I will say that on top of this whole thing, adding uncertainty, is the fact that there are no clear guidelines as to sort of what counts for improvement of the sort that the U.S. would see fit to accept as a way of deferring tariffs. And so it's all coming right back to the gut call from President Trump, which is precisely probably how he wants it. There's no objective standard of progress that Mexico is going to be measured against. They could do a thousand and one things, but if Trump doesn't like the border numbers he gets in August or whatever it is, he could just rip this whole thing up and send us back to tariffs. But we are hearing that the thing that Mexican negotiators are now sort of taking seriously, which I'd say is the biggest thing since this whole tariff thing started, is the prospect of a safe third country agreement with the United States and possibly more countries. This would be something along the lines, and, and some immigration scholars could, you know, call in and correct me if they think I'm getting this wrong, but sort of roughly equal to what the European Union has in something called the Dublin Rule, which basically says the first safe country within the European Union that you arrive in as a migrant is really where your asylum claim ought to be filed. And that if you go multiple steps around in Europe after that, you're going to sort of wreck your case or be sent back to the end of the line. And so the U.S., it sounds like, is trying to do something similar here, where if you're trying to flee El Salvador and the first safe country you get to is Mexico, where you're not fleeing MS-13 or whatever, then that is the country that ultimately has to process your claim that there's no responsibility for the U.S. to even get involved in most of those cases. And that would be a home run for Trump. Mexico is justifiably concerned about taking on a responsibility that their whole system is not really geared to take on. But nonetheless, Mexican negotiators are looking into it. We've heard reports of talks with the government of Panama and the government of Brazil in particular, which would basically bring in a whole sort of hemispheric immigration uh, deal here where you have the Panama government saying anyone who comes to us from Cuba or Haiti, we're the place those asylum claims are then judged. Brazil would take over and say people fleeing Africa and maybe Venezuela. That's where those claims are. And Mexico sort of just being sort of one of the northern safe third party countries as a part of that deal. So again, very early stages. But the fact that those conversations are even happening suggests Mexican negotiators seem to have moved a lot in the last few days. Yeah, and I'm reading that there are massive crop failures happening in Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. That that stretch near the equator there is being really, really whacked by climate change between drought and superstorms, much like the American Midwest is getting. And so it wouldn't surprise me if these climate change refugees are not only coming to the United States, but that they're also heading down to Panama. If that's the case, or through Panama into South America, 
If that's the case and we don't you know, rapidly do something about climate change, that's just going to get worse and worse. And we know the northern African refugees who are fleeing into Europe are also climate change refugees. At what point do people start referring to this as climate change refugees, A, and B, at what point might even the Trump administration and certainly you know, Mexico and Brazil start getting serious about doing something about this? Well, I think they are climate refugees already in some cases, but you do see the architecture of a system to handle that breaking down if what the U.S. and Mexico are talking about here is implemented. Yeah, well, that's, that's amazing. Luke Vargas with Talk Media News. You can follow him on Twitter at The Courier. Thank you, Luke. Thank you, Tom. Good talking with you, Mike. And don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Democracy really, I mean, the whole idea of democracy is the demos. It's us, right? The people. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 